0: This is episode number 1,204 with neuroscientist Andrew Huberman. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Welcome back, my friend. My guest today is neuroscientist Andrew Huberman. And Andrew is a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford, as well as Andrew runs Stanford's lab that primarily studies brain states such as fear, courage, anxiety, and how we can better move into and out of them through practices like visual cues, breath work, movement, and supplementation. It's always a pleasure to have Andrew back on the show, and you guys have shown so much support in the past when we have him on, so we wanted to bring him back for some incredible things we break down today. So make sure to check out our previous episodes in the show notes to learn more about Andrew and everything he's up to as well. But today, in this episode, we discuss why we experience brain fog and the best morning and night routines to get rid of it. The 90-minute focus hack that you need to try, how to manage your dopamine levels to Stay motivated how the gap effect can hugely benefit your ability to accelerate your learning how drugs and alcohol affect your brain and body and so much more this will be a powerful one for so many so if you're enjoying this please copy and paste this link and share it to your friends text people post it on social media and make sure to tag me and andrew huberman over on instagram twitter facebook linkedin as well when you share it and a quick reminder if you have not subscribed to the school of greatness now is your time to go to apple podcast or spot Click the subscribe button and leave us a review. That really helps us spread the message to more people over on those ecosystems. And I want to give a shout out to today's fan of the week from Slasher, who said, I'm a daily listener of the show and I've yet to find an episode I don't enjoy. From finance to health, I always have a new skill to add to my life. And I truly feel like Lewis and his guests are helping me become the person I've always wanted to be. So Slasher, thank you so much for being a part of this, and thank you for leaving the review and being the fan of the week this week. And if you want a chance to be shouted out on the podcast, just head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review for your chance to be shouted out on the podcast in the future. Okay, in just a moment, the one and only Andrew Huberman. How many times have you gone to the pharmacy with no idea what you're going to pay for your prescriptions? It used to happen to my team member all the time, but now she checks GoodRx. And not only does she know how much her medication is going to cost, she also knows she's getting the lowest price. She was prescribed a brand name medication, but insurance would only cover the generic brand. And she had side effects with the generic brand, so she was forced to pay out of pocket for the brand name. With GoodRx, she was able to save a lot of money on her medications. You see, prescription prices can vary between pharmacies by as much as $100, which is news to me. But GoodRx allows you to instantly compare prices at pharmacies in your neighborhood before you go, so you know exactly what you'll pay when you get there. So for simple, smart savings on your prescriptions, check GoodRx. Go to GoodRx. X.com slash greatness. That is GoodRx.com slash greatness. GoodRx is not insurance, but can be used instead of insurance. In 2020, GoodRx users saved an average of 79% off retail prices. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness. We've got the man, andrew Huberman in the house my man good to see you brother
1: yeah, great to see you it's great to be back we've got
0: our you're becoming our like resident neuroscientist you know, you're, <laughs> you're the the one we've had on a couple times now it's the third time on i'm so excited uh yesterday i woke up with brain fog and i usually don't have brain fog i was telling you about this a little bit for a second and i went into my spanish lesson which i told you before that i'm in spanish classes and i was just like it was hurting me like the, the Every minute I felt like I'm struggling, I felt like I wasn't recalling, I wasn't receiving the information. I couldn't conjugate the stuff I was trying to do and I was just like, I'm not in a good space, I need to stop. Like 20 minutes in I was just like, let's call it a day. I'm I'm curious, where does brain fog come from and how can we make sure that we have great morning routines to support us so that we don't have brain fog at all in the morning or later in the afternoon?
1: Great question. Well, there are a lot of sources of brain fog. The most obvious one would be a poor night's sleep. Okay. And Mm -hmm. sleep, of course, being the most fundamental layer of mental and physical health. I mean, you don't sleep well for one night, you're probably okay. For two nights, you start to fall apart. Three, four nights, Mm. you're really a degraded version of yourself in every aspect. Emotionality is is off, ability to do most anything is off, hormones start suffering. So sleep is is fundamental. But assuming that you slept well, there are a number of things. One is your breathing patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, we often get into discussions of breathing, but this is a slightly different one than we've had in the past. You know, A lot of people have sleep apnea. They are not getting enough oxygen during their sleep, uh, or they are mouth breathing during sleep. Mm-hmm. These days, it's become um, popular in some circles to take a little bit of medical tape and um, tape the mouth shut yeah. and to learn to be a nasal breather. And There is excellent evidence now that being a nasal breather, most of the time, uh, as long as you're not speaking or eating or exercising hard enough that you would need to breathe through your mouth, uh, that it's beneficial to be a nasal breather Mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you are nasal, deliberately nasal breathing during the day, the tendency is that you will nasal breathe at night, which tends to lead to less sleep apnea, less mouth breathing during the middle of the night and less brain fog. Mm. Why brain fog? Well, during sleep, a number of restorative processes occur, but if you're not getting enough oxygen into the system, the brain is literally becoming hypoxic. And a lot of the cleaning out mechanisms, the, the lymphatic system, et cetera, as they're called, don't get an opportunity to function as well as they ought to. So you wake up in the morning, you slept your normal six to eight hours, but you're feeling kind of groggy and out of it. Mm. And of course there could be other reasons that you're experiencing brain fog maybe, you know, for people that drink alcohol the night before, maybe they had alcohol, for people that Mm -hmm. maybe they ate a meal that was too large before sleep, maybe any number of reasons, right? But um, getting adequate oxygenation of the brain during sleep is key. So learn to be a nasal breather. And for those of you out there that say, well, I have a deviated septum. A lot of people think they have deviated septums. The problem is they're (laughs) not nasal breathing enough. The sinuses actually can learn to dilate if you nasal breathe, huh. uh, exercising while nasal breathing it will kind of depend on the sport. Like if you box, oftentimes there's the need to do a shh or, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like exhale on impact type thing. So I, I don't think anyone should tamper with their normal breathing patterns as it relates to sport or singing or some, you know, activity. But what I'm talking about is when you're just standing around, when you're walking down the street, any low-level activity, you're working at your desk, yeah. you should be nasal breathing and breathing regularly. That will reduce brain fog
0: in many yeah. cases. Absolutely. It's interesting. When I went to India to study meditation, I guess it was five years ago now, I learned that the monks breathe through, they keep their mouth shut all day long. You know, their mouth is shut. They breathe through the nose. Unless they're eating or they're having a conversation, their mouths are shut. And... Um, they seem to always just be very relaxed and you know sharp and with it they probably get great sleep and it's interesting as you were saying these symptoms uh breathing through the mouth poor sleep i realized two days before this brain fog day i was in vegas at the canelo fight and i stayed up really late it was daylight savings but i stayed up way past the time i was on an early flight back i just didn't get a lot of sleep in, the, in 24 hours before then I had a good night's sleep the next night, but the next day, so two days after right. the poor sleep. And for the last month, I've been breathing through my mouth because I had um, a, a surgery where I had three implants Ouch. where missing teeth yeah. are. So I had three titanium rods and a bone graft. So I couldn't keep my mouth shut. I had to keep it open to breathe because it was just painful. So maybe those combinations of poor sleep a couple nights before and, and breathing through the mouth is what caused it, which is makes sense to me. It
1: seems very likely. And in Vegas, you, you've you got the air conditioning, so you're breathing a lot of dry yeah, air in the middle of the night. The other thing is about the immune system. So the we hear about the gut microbiome. Yes. Uh, and, and indeed, we have a, a lot of microbiota that live in our gut. You can have healthy or unhealthy microbiota. It's an essential part of our biology. It is you know supports the nervous system, the immune system, and all of that. But if you think about the gut, the gut is obviously, when we think about the gut, we think about the stomach. But of course, it runs all the way up to the mouth and nose, we have a, a microbiome, we have a nasal microbiome, a mouth microbiome, we have a urethral microbiome, and in women there's a vaginal microbiome. Huh. And the microbiome are these bacteria that maintain a healthy, ideally a healthy condition of the mucosal lining. So without doing a whole lecture on in the immune system, <laughs> your primary barrier to infections of all kinds, bacteria, viruses, and parasites, is your skin. If you have a cut in your skin, you're more susceptible, right? But these are your entry points. You actually have an ocular microbiome too. Ears too, but it's um, it's mainly eyes, nose, and mouth are the primary sites of entry for infection. And
0: the nose has a filter where the mouth is just like you're sucking it in.
1: That's right. So the nose actually is better at scrubbing or filtering out bacteria, viruses, and we'll leave parasites aside for the moment, but then is the mouth. And so being a nasal breather actually is better in terms of combating different types of infections, all kinds of infections. And there's a wonderful book about this um, that was written by a couple of my colleagues at Stanford. If people want to do a deep dive, the book is called Jaws, A Hidden Epidemic. And the, the authors are Paul Ehrlich and Sandra Kahn, And it has a foreword by Jared Diamond and an intro by Robert Sapolsky. So some serious heavy hitters on this book. And it talks about how nasal breathing, deliberately nasal breathing during the day leads to better sleeping at night leads to better jaw structure. It actually creates more space for the tongue on the roof of the mouth and, and the teeth. They have some beautiful and not so beautiful images of twins that were raised apart. One was a nasal breather and chewed a lot of hard food. So a lot of using of the jaw to chew your food, um, You know, really gnawing on food is actually good for the jaw. Mm. Whereas the twin in these twin studies were, were, went off to cultures uh, or areas of the world where they were eating a lot of soft foods There are examples, for instance, of kids that had allergies um, to a pet hamster. There's one example. And the change in this kid's face, he went from having a a very attractive uh, face to a extended, um, you know, the eyes tend to droop. Right, because the sinuses are all changing shape. Now, the beauty of, of this system is that when you switch to becoming a nasal breather, the entire structure of the face and jaws change and the eyes become less droopy. This book documents all this. (laughs) Wait, so you can reverse it too? It's reversible. Come on. It is reversible.
0: Wow. It
1: involves a little bit of work. One of the things that you can do that's kind of fun and a little challenging is just on your jogs or on the treadmill or any kind of low level cardio besides swimming, just nasal breathing. Only go as hard as you can still maintain nasal breathing. Mm. It's very hard for the first few sessions, but by the second week or third week, you actually discover that you have a greater capacity to exercise. Uh, My friend Brian McKenzie, who's uh, done a lot of uh, work on this, he works with elite performers in terms of um, singers, opera singers, but also athletes. And he's done a lot in terms of using nasal breathing during exercise. But the point is that if you deliberately nasal breathe, even when emailing or texting, you also avoid what's called email apnea or what we should call now text apnea. They've done studies where people are texting and they're holding their breath. So you're cutting off oxygen supply. So I think the important thing to bring us back to brain fog is that you want to get oxygen into the system. And ideally you're bringing that oxygen into the system, mainly through your nose and not through your mouth. It doesn't mean that breathing through your mouth is a terrible thing to do. It just means that most of the time you want to be breathing deeply and rather slowly through the nose, maybe anywhere from, four or five breaths per minute. I'm, I Don't hold me too close to that number, but mm-hmm. you wanna be breathing slowly and deeply through your nose most of the time.
0: So it's probably the 80-20 rule, right? Where you're speaking and eating sure. 20% of your day. Yeah, if you're
1: sprinting, then... you're gonna huff and puff through your mouth. If yes. you're weightlifting, you're doing martial arts, you're doing anything that requires breathing through your mouth In or to perform better Mm than just obviously do that. right? But um, The rest of
0: your resting time, mm -hmm. try to breathe through your nose as much as possible. That's right. And while you sleep.
1: That's right, and it also helps with ear infections and things Mm -hmm. of that sort, because the whole system, when you hear ear, nose, and throat, you have ear, nose, and throat doctors, ENTs, it's because the the whole system of drainage from the ears, nose, and throat, they run together like a bunch of little rivers that all drain to the same location. The microbiome of the nose stays healthier if you're a nasal breather. If you're, the mouth is a terrible filter for viruses, meaning things can get in and cause problems. Most of the time, an illness starts with a throat tickle, like something's mm, happening yeah, back there. Like a little cough or yep. something, right? Yeah, it's that little itch in the, you know, that's the uh-oh. What is that tickle? Uh, it's ir- uh, irritation of the muc- of the mucosal lining and there are neurons that sit right below there that are now getting exposed because the mucosal lining is getting worn away or the chemistry of the mucosal lining is changing.
0: What's the best way to reverse that when you start to feel the tickle in your throat?
1: Ah, there we can look to our good, uh, our good friend. Well, a couple of things: uh, slow down whatever you're doing. Obviously, if you Rest. can get some, if you can get a nice hot shower, bath, or sauna, and then get into bed and take get ten hours of sleep, that would be ideal. But if you're at the Canelo fight and you're you've got that, our friend um, Wim Hof mm-hmm. um, practices something called. Tumor breathing, it's it's sometimes called, and that goes by other names as well. And there's a beautiful study that was published in the Journal of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, this is peer reviewed work, showing that if you take two groups of people, you inject them both with E. coli, a bacteria which makes you very, very sick, but one group does a simple meditation and another group does Breathing of the sort that I'll describe in a moment, that WIM and tumo type breathers and other people have, have mm-hmm. talked about actually for centuries. Yogi
0: breathers, yogi. Yeah. yeah,
1: it what you do, what it involves is hyperoxygenating the system so that you release adrenaline from the adrenal glands, which ride which sit right about your kidneys. And adrenaline is the trigger for a number of different immune system uh, cell types to combat infection. And what they found was if people do a particular style of breathing prior to the injection of E. coli, they are able to greatly avoid fever. They reduce the amount of inflammatory cytokines, things like IL-6, interleukin-6, etc., and increase anti-inflammatory cytokines, Mm. like interleukin 10. It's a really wonderful study. The pattern of breathing is really simple. I do it anytime I'm starting to feel a little worn out or like I might be catching something, or if I was on a plane and someone around me seemed like they weren't doing so well, or I just am feeling a little worn out. And uh, forgive me, because there's no other way to do it but just to do it, but it involves 25 deep breaths in through the nose, in this case, out through the mouth, Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is a case where breathing through the mouth is appropriate. So in through the nose, out through the mouth. Then at the end of that, exhaling all your air, holding your breath for 15 to 60 seconds. Don't fight the impulse to breathe when you feel the impulse to Mm -hmm. breathe. Breathe in and then hold your breath for as long as you can until you feel the impulse to breathe. Obviously, don't do this in your water. Believe it or not, a few people have actually died doing this because Mm. they did it in a bathtub or before um, diving underwater. So please don't do that. But it basically, I won't do the all 25, but it's, it goes something like this. So big deep breaths, right? And I can already feel I'm kind of heating up. Yeah. That's the release of adrenaline. A little tingly feeling. You're and, hyperoxygenating, yeah. you're releasing adrenaline. Adrenaline is the signal for the immune system to deploy these killer cells and these cells that go in combat infection. And we don't often think about the fact that stress actually is the go signal for the immune system. We always hear stress depletes your immune system. And that's true if you remain chronically stressed, but humans are phenomenally good at combating stressors. And then they stop, they relax, and boom, they get sick because the adrenaline signal drops. The other way you could do this would be to do an an ice bath or really cold shower. Mm -hmm. You get the adrenaline release. That's basically the effect of the ice bath or cold shower it's the adrenaline release. Some people will do well by doing a short HIIT workout, you know, a HIIT high intensity interval mm-hmm. training workout, because again, it's adrenaline. So it, not a depleting workout, but you know, 12 minutes of, of sprint walk sprint walk Mm. my sprints are very different than your sprints because like you actually sprint (laughs) you're faster than me still (laughs) in not in my best best dream uh but thank you for that you can lift more that's for sure not not (laughs) in my best best dream but uh but thank you for that uh so this is something that i occasionally do if i'm traveling Mm -hmm. or i'm just feeling kind of worn down i'll do it i'll do maybe two or three rounds of what i just described Mm -hmm. and it's it all boils down to adrenaline release. Really, that bolus, as we call it, a shot of adrenaline to your system, signals the immune system to turn on and to to combat, itself. To defend itself, getting sick. That's right. And this is why uh, people who have ever taken care of a sick child or a sick relative, you can go, go, go. You don't eat. You don't sleep. There's no we, you know, no self care, and you're not getting sick. Now, of course, if you're exposed to enough viral load or you're exposed to enough of a bacteria you know, it might get you, but this is the mm-hmm. sort of thing I would do if I was feeling a little bit of a throat tickle, a little run down. but then I would also do the the shower, make sure you get some decent food and, yes. and get a good, good, good sleep. night's sleep.
0: So what's the routine then, the ultimate morning and evening routine to set your brain and your mind up for optimal performance and not getting brain fog?
1: Okay. Um, I will describe that uh, by listing out the protocol first, and then I'll give some of the scientific mechanism second because in the past what i've tended to do is uh give the mechanism and then give the protocols i know some people it's like you know enough for these academic guys just give me the give me tell them just tell me what to do but if people want the mechanism i'd be happy to flesh that out yes i should say that what i will mention is not everything i do um so Mm -hmm. for instance uh i get up and like most humans i use the restroom and i have a glass of water. Brush I do those things. So yeah. if I, if I, I'm not listing every every right foot left foot step through the morning, but yes. but the things that are geared towards getting the mind into a proper place for me, I'll describe it as my routine. I, I generally get up somewhere between five thirty and seven in the morning, depending on when I went to sleep. Mm-hmm. I'm not super regular about when I go to sleep, um, but generally that's between ten thirty and um, midnight. Yeah, you know, I try and avoid that midnight hour, but um, happens. So I get up, obviously I use the restroom. I drink some water. I do think that hydrating is very important. Yes. Uh, so I will, I'll drink some, some water. And then the fundamental layer of health is to set your circadian rhythm. The simplest way to do that is to go outside for 10 minutes and get some bright light in your eyes. I'll just list off some of the things that people always ask. What if you wake up before the sun rises? Well, simple rule. If you want to be awake, turn on as many bright lights in your house as possible, but then when the sun goes out, comes out, excuse me, get outside mm-hmm. and see some sunlight. You do not have to look directly into the sun, but you do want to get outside out of shade cover if you can. Don't wear sunglasses if you can do that safely. Don't try and do this through a window. Don't try and negotiate with me on this mm, point. People go are like, outside. what about a window? Well, the filtration of the of the important wavelengths of light through the window is just too high, and so it would take hours for you to set your
0: circadian clock mm. that way. As you can tell by this episode, we can always count on Andrew for science-backed tips and advice on how to optimize ourselves. And after this conversation, I was so inspired myself to actively seek out a product that will help improve my day-to-day life. And today's sponsor is Endel, an award-winning app that harnesses the power of sound to improve your focus, sleep, and overall mental health. Endel takes into account the current amount of outdoor natural light in my location, the weather my heart rate, my wake up time, and my activity level to create a soundscape in real time just for me. Now, Endel uses AI technology to understand your exact needs and enhance your state of mind through sound. Whether you need to get to sleep, concentrate on the task at hand, or unwind after a long day, Endel generates personalized soundscapes in real time that are customized to you. Endel also integrates with Apple Watch, Aura Ring, and Alexa, allowing you to deepen its personalization. And I tried it while doing some work to prep for an interview, and I was able to zone in and get into deep focused state. If you wanna try it for yourself, I've worked with the team at Endel to give you a whole month for free with full access to Endel's soundscapes library and features. If you wanna try it for free right now, head to endel.io slash Lewis to grab your free month. That's E-N-D-E-L dot I-O slash Lewis.
1: You want to do this because once every 24 hours, you're going to get a a peak in cortisol, which is a healthy peak. You want that peak to happen early in the day because it sets up alertness for the remainder of the day. There are really nice studies done by my colleagues in Stanford Psychiatry and Biology Department showing that if that cortisol peak starts to drift too late in the day, you start seeing signs of depression. It's actually a well-known marker of depression. So you want that cortisol, almost stressed out, kind of oh, the day's beginning, I have a lot to do feeling, that's a healthy thing, you want that happening early in the day. Mm. The sunlight will wake you up. And what's really cool is that over time, you'll start to notice the sunlight waking you up more and more. The system becomes tuned up. If you miss a day, it's not the end of the world because it's a, as we call it, a slow integrating system. But don't miss more than one day. And if you live in an area where it's very cloudy outside, just know that the sunlight, the photons coming through that cloud cover are brighter than your brightest indoor lights. Now, if you live in a very dark region of the world or it's unsafe or purely impractical to get outside in the morning, then it might make sense to get a, a sunrise simulator or one of these lights, but they tend to be very expensive. What I recommend people use instead is it just a ring light, a ring wow. blue light. This is a case where you can blast your system. Wow. Um, so get that morning light. That this is. It sets a number of things in motion, such as your melatonin rhythm to happen 16 hours later to help you fall asleep. I would say this is the fundamental step of any good morning. And if you don't do this enough, you are messing yourself up in a number of ways. Does this mess with digestion also? Yeah. So every cell in your body has a 24-hour clock. All those clocks need to be aligned to the same time. So imagine a clock shop with lots of different clocks, Mm. and you don't want them alarming off at different times this sunlight viewing or bright light viewing early in the day, I would say within 30 to 60 minutes of waking up for about 10 minutes, or if it's very cloudy, maybe 30 minutes or so, that activates a particular type of neuron in the eye called the intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cell, if people want to look that up, signals to the circadian clock, which is right above the roof of your mouth, but that is the master circadian clock that then releases a bunch of signals into your body. This all happens very fast. Mm. And every cell in your body gets, tuned to the exact same time reference point so that your system can work as a nice concert of cells as opposed to out of whack. Your gut has a clock, your liver has a clock, your heart cells have a clock, every skin cell has a clock. And for those that are not incentivized enough by the cortisol stuff and all the other things, actually the replenishment of stem cells in the skin, hair, and nails is activated by the system. So hair grows more readily, Um, Skin turns over and nails grow more quickly Mm. because you have stem cells, literally cells that release more cells that become new hair cells or new skin cells and new uh, cells that make up the nails. So skin, hair and nails also benefit. And it has to be light exposure to the eyes. When we talk about all these things like the gut and the skin, et cetera, it's tempting to say, oh, it's sunlight on the skin. No, it's actually only can be signaled through the eyes because the clock lives deep in the brain. That master clock, and you need the signal to get to that master clock. So don't wear sunglasses. If you can avoid, if you can avoid wearing sunglasses, safely, right? There are people, for instance, who have macular degeneration, it's, who have to avoid bright lights, and and they know mm-hmm. this because their ophthalmologist right. tells them. Uh, if you wear corrective lenses, contacts, even if it has UV filtration, that's fine. In fact, if mm. you think about what a what an eyeglass or a contact lens does is it focuses light onto the eye, actually onto Mind the rising, retina on the yeah. back of the eye, whereas looking through a window filters it. It it, it blocks a certain mm-hmm. amount of light coming in, even if it's a very clear window. So go outside. If you wear glasses, fine. If you wear contacts, fine. And if you can get out on a porch and be you know east facing in the morning when the sun comes up, great. You don't need to see the sun cross the horizon but ideally you see the sun when it's at what we call low solar angle. It's not directly overhead. If you wait two or three hours after waking up um, to get bright light in your eyes, you are setting yourself up for a complicated sleep-wake cycle that leads to a lot of what we call insomnia.
0: Mm. Mm. So this is important to do in the first 60 minutes of waking up. Get outside, 10 minutes. You don't have to be in the sun, but you want to be able to look and see the sun, right? Right. Yes. Is it okay to be in the shade or you want the sunlight hitting your skin? Also? It
1: depends on how bright it is. So for instance, this morning I woke up because of where I live, there's a lot of tree cover, but I saw that the sun was, was uh, there were a lot of shadows, but it was casting a nice patch of light uh, in the street, right in front of my house. Uh-huh. So I'm the weirdo that walked out there <laughs> under you know, with my coffee. Uh, actually, I delay my coffee. It was with my water in the morning. I'll talk about why I delay coffee. And I, um, and I, you know, I'm leaning against a tree. I confess, I was text messaging at part for part of that. Yeah. You know, forgive me, I'm human, and catching the sunlight coming in through my eyes for a few minutes. I, I allow myself to blink. Obviously, I'm not. So you'll look, you won't look directly at the sun. You don't or, want to look direct. You'll there's a safety. I guess neck, if it's a lower, yeah, lower horizon, it's not that it's, intense. Yeah. We have a built-in safety mechanism, which is if you need to blink and close your eyes, close your eyes. But yeah, I've got sunlight in my eyes. I get the weird looks from my neighbors, but they know me um, and they do it too. Sometimes they'll join me. Animals will naturally do this. They'll migrate to the sun. So then I go go inside. It's 10 minutes um, or so. It seems like a long time, but it is so beneficial. Mm. And then inside, if I want to be awake, I try and turn on as many bright lights as I can. One of the big mistakes that we've made in the last few years, as a as a culture, is assuming that blue light is bad. During the day, lots of blue light is great because it that's the, the best signal for these cells that wake up your, your system. It activates all sorts of important hormone pathways and mm-hmm. wakefulness pathways. Interesting. It can reduce brain fog in some sense. Sure. It's in the evening that you want to avoid blue lights and bright lights of any kind. We can talk about that. But okay. so then I come back inside and then I do not drink caffeine right away. That it's important in many ways, to delay caffeine enough so that you can clear out some of the chemical signals in the brain and body that lead to a a feeling of fatigue. So the longer you're Mm. awake, the more a molecule called adenosine builds up in your system. And when you sleep, you push that adenosine level back down. When you wake up in the morning, that adenosine level can be zero, but oftentimes there's still some hanging around. Caffeine is an adenosine antagonist. It blocks adenosine function. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's effectively what it does. So if you wake up and you've got, let's say 20%, let's make, uh, this is arbitrary, but 20% of your adenosine has still hasn't been cleared out. That's sort of a drowsiness that you woke up with. Mm-hmm. Then you go and you drink your coffee and you crush that, that uh, ability of adenosine to have that effect, but it hasn't gone away. So that when your coffee wears off mid-morning, Now that adenosine is there and you feel like there's a mid-morning crash or an afternoon crash. So I delay my caffeine intake for about 90 and ideally 120 Mm -hmm. minutes after I wake up, because in that way, you bring your adenosine level down very, very low to zero, and then you don't get this rebound crash in the afternoon. For years, I would get this post-lunch, Crash, and I thought maybe I'm eating too much for lunch, which right. I probably was, or maybe I'm eating the wrong <laughs> foods. Turned out it was all related to my timing of caffeine. Gosh. So, and your system learns how to wake up naturally. Right. You get the natural cortisol and adrenaline. Release. Give it the time. Yeah. Give it the time. And people hate this one because it's it's a little painful for the caffeine addicts. But I'm a pretty serious caffeine addict, and I embrace that. And I'll tell you, it also makes the joy of the coffee so much greater. You're like waiting for yeah. that, you're saying exactly. like, like,
0: oh my first. Oh, it tastes sip. so
1: much better. Um, and that relates to the dopamine system, which I know we're going to talk Ooh, about yes. later. I sometimes will drink yerba mate instead of. Yeah, I love um, mate. Mate has a, a Do you couple put of honey in it or
0: anything. I or sweet, don't. Or something? I don't really
1: like sweet stuff too much. And I um, wish I had that
0: disease. Yeah,
1: it's you know. <laughs> I wish I, had I like that. savory things and <laughs> yeah. salty things. Um, I I like yerba mate for a number of reasons. I don't like the really smoky mates. And my dad's Argentine, so I grew up drinking mate.
0: But you don't speak Spanish, though, do you?
1: Uh, I speak four words of Spanish, and and, and those I speak uh, poorly. So yeah. is your dad's
0: uh, fluent? He's fluent.
1: Come I, on! I know. Parents who How are bi- do you, that's know. a crime, isn't I it? Know, it's a crime. Well, it's not a crime I committed. I love well, my dad. Your dad but, committed, yeah. Well, pa- bilingual parents, please encourage your children to learn multiple languages. What Musicians, th- parents, teach you know. your
0: kids the, the instrument.
1: Yeah, have what you ever seen the, who, the people who play guitar in college? Let's just say their lives are, are better than everyone else's. <laughs> what are the yeah.
0: benefits, as we're just, as a side point here, I was just talking about Mate, what are the benefits of learning two languages in early childhood development mm-hmm. over only learning one?
1: Well, it, probably multiple benefits, um, in addition to the practical benefits in, in life and mm-hmm. jobs opportunities and opportunities and that come to relationships. Oh, and, absolutely. And it, there's... Uh, there, Well, and relationship opportunities, if you're with ever with someone, I was in a relationship for, for several years with somebody who was from France and spoke French. Wow. And I eventually picked up some French and I could understand, but I could never really understand the subtlety of the humor. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot that we couldn't share, unfortunately. So there are multiple yes. reasons to do that. I mean, there are many, many reasons to learn languages. But from a brain perspective, I mean, you you've got this as we say, neural architecture, these areas of the brain, they're devoted to language, primarily on the left side, but it really it's, it's, there's functionality on both sides. And those areas are like a, a, a template for for whatever language you're exposed to. You can pack a lot more into that neural real estate if you learn multiple languages and that affords you a flexibility at better language learning for new languages so you know the the languages that are latin based mm-hmm. a lot so you could learn french as a child and speak english and then find it easier to speak italian right. or learn italian and find it easier to learn French, just like if you learn how to play the oboe as a child, um, the guitar is actually going to be easier for you just because of a, a, the neural circuits for understanding scales and pitch and these kinds of things. You can mm-hmm. tell I'm not a musician. Yeah. Those are there. <laughs> so I think there's a, a tremendous utility to yeah. it. Okay. Um but the, the mate is uh, is for the caffeine. The yep. mate also tends to be, for. You know, it's never a pleasant topic, but it's somewhat of a laxative, which mm. I think keeping digestion, out. flushing uh, your system. And it contains something called glucagon-like peptide one, GLP-1. GLP-1 is something you're gonna hear a lot more about in the years to come. It's actually now in clinical trials for the treatment of diabetes and obesity. Mm. It enhances lipolysis, the conversion of fat into energy. and it, it's just a... So how does that mean it helps you burn fat? It helps you burn fat. It helps you... We should be careful because sometimes this gets tricky. Uh, it helps you utilize fat as an energy source. And not needing the sugar. Right. Whether or not you lo- visibly lose fat or not will depend on whether or not you're in a caloric deficit. But, but it helps shuttle the... Direct the metabolism, let's say, toward um, using fat stores as a mm. energy resource, which is very good. And it also has some indirect effects on blood sugar regulation through the insulin management pathway.
0: And that's and mate is caffeinated or no caffeine? Oftentimes
1: it's caffeine, and oftentimes it can be very high caffeine. The one that I like... I thought and I, you, I
0: thought you said no caffeine until 90 minutes after, right?
1: Right. So I, I'm not touching mate until 90 to gotcha. 120 minutes okay. after waking up. It was We were talking about coffee. Sometimes I'm drinking coffee, sometimes I'm drinking mate. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And if I'm really... Get going for it. I really have this doing both. I like to see the mate <laughs> and double the coffee, sh- and I, t- I like t- to yeah. just sip one then the other. Um, mate is kind of nice too because it it contains electrolytes, so it's not mm. as depleting. Uh, you know,
0: dehydrating.
1: Yeah, well, your neurons run on sodium, pa- magnesium, and potassium. Huh. That's how neurons fire. Sodium ions rush into the cell. If you're low in sodium or you're dehydrated, your brain isn't going to work as well. Right. So caffeine in the form of coffee is great, but you should probably drink two volumes of water for every one volume of of coffee you drink in order to hydrate. And a lot of people feel jittery when they drink caffeine or they feel lightheaded or they suddenly get hungry. Oftentimes that's because they're sodium depleted. Mm. I think 2022, I think we're also going to hear a lot about the value of salt. Salt is an essential nutrient. Obviously people with hypertension should not be consuming too much salt, but there's a lot of good science now to support the fact that if you're feeling lightheaded or you feel like you have, quote unquote, low blood sugar, oftentimes taking a little pinch of salt, putting in some water and drinking that, maybe with some lemon juice to adjust the taste, all of a sudden you, your shaking stabilizes, you feel more alert. Why? Because salt, salt and water have an interesting relationship. It increases blood volume and oftentimes then you're getting more blood flow to the brain simply by increasing your sodium intake. And wow. uh, so I think we're... So mate's
0: we're, got a lot of those ingredients. Mate doesn't
1: have has electrolytes. It doesn't have salt. Yeah. But for I would say for anyone that's thinking about their morning routine and brain fog, you know, there's no reason why in your morning water, you might just put a little tiny pinch of salt. And if you're drinking a lot of coffee in any form or, or caffeine in any form, I should say, then you want to be sure you're getting enough sodium. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice that if you drink a lot of caffeine, that you'll crave sodium. And this has a whole relationship in the kidney and aldosterone and we don't have time to go into it. But I always make sure that if I'm drinking water before or with my caffeine, that I try and put a little bit of salt in Got it. There. Okay. And there are a lot of supplement companies now spinning up. We don't have to throw out brands that 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 are selling salt solution. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is becoming
0: big. Big. Yeah. Okay. So water, bright light, no caffeine until 90 to 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. What's next?
1: Uh, water with salt. Okay. And water then it's a question of whether or not I'm training that day or not. Uh, so I do believe getting exercise is important. I think the data, having reviewed the data and talked to uh, a number of experts on this, in particular, uh, there's a guy who's really terrific. Um, you may know him, uh, Dr. Andy Galpin, who's down at okay. Cal State Fullerton, uh, okay. excellent exercise physiologist. But also if you look across the the mass of studies on exercise and heart health, there are a couple of things that become clear. One is that everybody should be getting 120 to 150 and maybe even 150 to 180 minutes of so-called zone two cardio a week. This is the kind of cardiovascular exercise where you're doing work. You could have a conversation, but you're kind of at the threshold where it's not super easy to have a conversation, but we're Mm -hmm. not talking sprints. There's just a myriad of effects on heart health, Uh, you know, vascular health all over the body, gut microbiome, musculoskeletal stability, mental health, all these kinds of things. So I have a routine where I either weight train for an hour in the morning or I do a portion of that weekly cardio. Mm-hmm. And I just alternate weight train one day, cardio the next, weight train. And then one day a week, I don't do anything. I don't do any exercise. Six
0: days a week, you exercise. Yeah. yeah. And
1: I miss days. So You know, occasionally because of travel or other schedules or appointments, I might take two days off. Yes. I never go seven days. I always, I per- personally do well having a complete day off each mm-hmm. week. But the hour of exercise generally is, you know, five, 10 minutes of warm up And then, and it's hard work, Yeah, you know, and I don't, This is a new thing that we can get into when I talk about dopamine, but I do not allow myself to check social media, text message, phone calls, and lately not even music when I train uh, for reasons that we can get into later. I'm really trying to get focused on what I'm doing, and I'm trying to extract the greatest amount of joy from the process Mm
0: -hmm. in its
1: purest form. So, so
0: no phone essentially. I try I not
1: to have the phone. Occasionally, I'll use music or I'll listen yeah. to a podcast because it's yeah. such a great time to do that. So I don't want to say I never do, but most of the time, I'm trying very hard to just do Be my present. exercise. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And it doesn't matter if you you know run, swim, bike, row. Uh, you know, people these days can do calisthenics or weight training or something of that sort. The weight training thing is interesting because muscle building aside it's very clear that five sets a week per muscle group is what's required to maintain muscle. Mm. And this is true for men, this is true for women. And obviously in young kids, you don't want them weight training with heavy loads because it can shut down their long bone growth. That's the myth or the, what they say anyway. But I don't know, kids are developing anyway. Right. So I don't know, I'll leave that to the, to the coaches to decide that and the parents. But I think for people that are in their late teens, early 20s and onward, it's really important if you look at longevity, a lot of the major injuries and early deaths and um, not just due to accident, but you know, chronic illness comes from people falling and breaking a hip, mm-hmm. and just not being strong. And so I think being strong regardless of who you are is important and so that's five sets per week, minimum per muscle group and probably more like 10. Uh, routines splay out differently. So I do my mm-hmm. thing, people have their thing. Um, so I, I try and exercise. Or I do a 90-minute workout. And if I exercise, we could talk about that. Then I would shower and do my 90 work minute workout. But sometimes I do the 90-minute workout first. Mm-hmm. And that's generally what when I'm starting to drink the caffeine. And the 90-minute workout is a serious, non-negotiable time in which I don't allow myself to be on the internet. I'm not checking email. I'm not texting. My phone is off, off, off. And not, you know, not on airplane mode. And mm. and it's a process of learning to focus and learning to do what we call no-go functions in the brain. So we have an area of the brain called the basal ganglia that control go functions, like reaching out for a pen, and no-go, which is resisting the urge to do something. And these are circuits that are very mm. important for learning how to control attention and for controlling behavior. Young animals, puppies, humans, don't do no-go very well. Do you know the the two marshmallow? Yeah. Okay, the two marshmallow, you offered kids a a marshmallow and you say if you don't eat it, you'll get two marshmallows. In 10 minutes. Um, In 10 10 minutes, minutes, some kids can do it. That's pure, that's a no-go task. You're saying how well can you resist the urge to just go and eat the marshmallow? And there are a number of, things that mimic this, another no-go type behavior would be meditation, for instance, where you sit down, it's kind of painful to sit cross-legged, your thoughts are drawing you off, you remember something you need to do, and you're resisting the temptation to get up and do something else. And so this 90-minute work bout is a kind of combined meditation, but also functional work for me. So for me, that could be writing, it could be planning a podcast, it could mm. be um, reading. It's something that's kind of hard and the thing to understand about this 90-minute workout is that you should expect some friction early on. It's not like you just flip a switch and you're in, that it takes some time to get into this focus mode, and throughout that time, your brain will flicker in and out. And there's a tool that you can use to enhance your focus prior to this 90-minute workout, and I actually do this. It sounds a little crazy, but it actually is grounded in really good neuroscience, which is that you place a crosshatch, a, you know, just a target, at some distance on a piece of paper and you force yourself to stare at it and not blink for about 30 to 60 seconds. And what you're doing is you're ramping up the neural circuits in the brain that drive go, no go, and harnessing your visual attention. Your focus. You're focusing. Visual focus drives cognitive focus. And for people that aren't sighted, auditory focus drives cognitive focus. So visual
0: focused drives cognitive focus.
1: Yes. These two little bits of that we call eyes are, as uh, people probably heard me say before, are two little bits of brain that are outside the cranial vault. Mm -hmm. They're the only way that your brain knows what to do in terms of whether or not it's day or night, who's out there, et cetera. But it's also a mechanism by which you draw your attentional systems into from kind of everywhere. You know, imagine spotlights just kind of moving around, bringing those spotlights to a common location and then intensifying that spotlight. Mm. And since most work involves what we call exterocepting, looking outside ourselves, this is very different than, lie, you know, sitting in meditation where you're focusing internally. Because when you sit down to work, you kind of want to forget about your heartbeat and how your feet feel on the floor and that your back and you know mm. might be a little sore or something. You want to be in the work. And so I do. I set a timer and I force 90 minutes of this, and it and it's really tough, Louis. Some days, <laughs> some days I, it's. Anything to go get something out of the fridge. Any, get and, up and distract myself. And occasionally and... I fail. I will get up and go do something and or I'll look at my phone. I do falter sometimes. But if you can learn to do this 90-minute bout. And I bet consistently you yeah, can create some amazing work. You, can do, you will do your best work. And what's really wonderful is it's not just about the work that you perform in that bout. What ends up happening is really special. This sort of combined meditation work bout as I'm calling it has this effect of, you are actually tuning up and making your neural circuits for focus and attention better. So that after that, okay, you flip on the internet, you check your email, you're doing text messaging, you're probably hungry now. I'm hungry if I've, if I've exercised, so I'll eat my meal, my, my lunch. Uh, I tend to fast till about lunch most days. But what happens then is after lunch or something, you decide, oh, you know, I'm, I'm gonna sit down and, and read something or I'm gonna do some more work but I've only got 20 minutes, you can drop in like a laser. It's re- it, wow. Because the circuits have learned, you, you recognize that state. It's a, I guess the, the analogy would be, you do your hardest workout in the morning, mm-hmm. and you, you, or maybe it's a skill learning period, I know, because you used to play professional sports. Yeah, yeah. And then in the afternoon, it's gonna be hard to recreate that entire 90-minute yes. session. But you go back and you can drill it, and you, you're right there, because your nervous system recognizes you're right there. Mm-hmm. And you, and so that's a, a, a holy part of my morning, as wow. holy as the sunlight viewing. Wow. And it's something that's very hard to build in, but I actually schedule it just like I would a Zoom call. And, and it's really, it's cool because when you then, for instance, if you have a social interaction where someone comes to you and they say, I've got something to do, and you're sort of distracted or I, something I need to tell you, you'll notice that you can quickly intensify that at, uh, what we call attentional spotlight mm. in, in neuroscience. Wow. And so it's a skill. And I hear these days a lot about attention deficit and trouble focusing. and indeed, some people have clinically diagnosed attention deficit. And I want you know I, there are resources for them. I did a whole podcast on ADHD, but many people don't have attention deficit in the clinical sense. They created it because they've never actually taught their brain how to focus for very long. And the phone's sitting right here, and there's distraction everywhere. And then of course it raises all these questions. Like people say, well, do you listen to music? Do you Mm -hmm. listen to white noise? There are a lot of tools and tricks. Sometimes music helps, sometimes music hinders. Sometimes being in a cafe can help. Sometimes pure silence helps. Mm -hmm. It's it's really individual and it's really context dependent. So I don't want to give a, a, a prescriptive, but that 90 minute work bout, if I can do all those things and then get that 90 minute work bout and then eat my lunch, I feel like the system is set to make the rest of the day even better. because we often hear about the perfect morning routine, but we're not thinking about how that routine influences the rest of the mm, day's routine.
0: Yes. When did you start implementing that 90 minute of uh, focus?
1: Well, the, this whole thing around um, deliberate focus really started for me in college because uh, to make a long story short, I was not a very disciplined high school student. <laughs> I barely finished high school. I eventually got my act together. Uh, I went to college and after the first year, I did very poorly. Uh, I left, went to community college, came back and decided it was time to get serious. So I, this was all pre-cell phone because I'm 46 now. So I used to sit down at my desk. I would allow myself, it was CDs back then, two different CDs. It was a rancid CD. And a Bob Dylan CD, those are the only CDs I'd allow myself to listen to. I had my coffee, my water, and I would use the bathroom. And then I would not allow myself to get up for two hours. I would just study. Wow. And there were times when I spent a lot of time just looking at the tip of my pen, wondering <laughs> if this was ever going to kick in. But then I realized if I could get just get 15 seconds of focus, I noticed that I could focus better. So it's not like sets and reps in the gym where there's a fatigue. And you, for instance, if you mm. do 10, you know, I'm making this up. I don't do these kinds of routines, but 10 sets of 10, it's very hard to maintain that output 20 minutes later. I noticed that with focus, it's something that you kind of drop into a groove. Now, after about 90 minutes, it's very hard to maintain that. And there's a lot of data showing that these 90 minute, what are called ultradian rhythms, much of our life is broken up into 90 minute cycles, Mm -hmm. but these 90 minute learning bouts are very good. And there are a couple other little tricks if people really want to get fancy. Um, there's some really cool data that were published this last year uh, in cell reports on what are called gap effects. Okay. So when you learn something, whether or not it's a physical skill or you're learning a language, let's say you're working on uh, sentences in, in Spanish because you're, mm-hmm. you're learning Spanish as, as we know, and you're really drilling it hard, harder, you're, you're working at It turns out that if you stop randomly every once in a while and take 10 seconds and just do nothing. Mm. The brain, this has been now demonstrated by brain imaging. The brain runs many repetitions inside of that little rest block of the material that you were trying to learn. And the speed of learning and the depth of learning is much faster. So these gap effects have been shown for physical skill learning, language learning, math learning, music, et cetera. this is the same process that happens during sleep. So normally you learn something during the day. You try and learn, you go to sleep. And during sleep, there's a rapid replay of the information. Right. And that's when so-called neuroplasticity rewiring of connections occurs. These little gaps that you're doing, that you're inserting at random, not every three minutes or so, but just at random, taking these 10-second 10 10 gaps, seconds, yeah. give you many more repetitions. So it's it's, it's huh. if ever there was a little... Uh, what is it, like a cheat code? Is that what they yeah, called it in yeah, video yeah. games? I don't play video games, but <laughs> a cheat code, it's this, that every once in a while, you just stop and do nothing. You don't have to close your eyes and you're getting more repetitions and then you go back into it. So some people like to do that. And then we're about done with the morning, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't um, say that I always after lunch do a 10 to 30 minute either non-sleep deep rest or hypnosis.
0: What does that do for you?
1: Well, what it does is it, at least what the data show, because there have now been two studies published last year, one in Cell Reports, and I believe the other was also in Cell Reports, Cell Press Journal, excellent journal, showing that 20 minute naps or things of the sort that I just described, the hypnosis I described, allow the neural plasticity that was triggered during that learning bout hmm. to occur much more quickly. And so people learn faster. Interesting. Yeah. So you're, and for some people, A nap isn't a feasible thing. Uh, Some people say, are naps good or bad? If your nap interferes with your nighttime sleep, it's bad. Bad. If your nap does not, then it's okay. And naps that are shorter than 90 minutes, so anywhere from 10, 20, 30, 45, but certainly not longer than 90 minutes, are going to be better than naps that are longer than 90 minutes for reasons related to sleep. So that kind of ends the morning. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the day just depends on what's happening. And I think it's too varied yeah. To describe, but I do suggest that people try and get a little bit of sunlight as the sun is setting in the evening or late afternoon, depending on time of year and where you live. Same practice because mm. now you're sending two signals to that master circadian clock of when there's morning and when there's evening, and that clock has a what we call a morning and an evening oscillator. So if you can give more signals, then the system becomes more robust. It also ensures you a little bit against some of the exposure to nighttime bright light for reasons related mm. to retinal sensitivity. So go outside for 10 or 15 minutes, check fine if you need to check your tech message, text messages, do it out front of the, your building or your right. home. That's going to be very good.
0: That's cool, yeah. okay. That's
1: the ultimate morning routine for you. That's the ultimate morning routine for me. I uh, People might say, well, you're only working for 90 minutes, but I would wager that in that 90, 90 minutes of focus is better than 6 hours of distraction. In that 90 minutes I'm accomplishing much more than I would accomplish in 3-4 hours. Mm-hmm. I will often do a second 90-minute bout in the afternoon. But very few people can do more than 3 hours or 4 hours of really focused work per yeah. day. And I'm talking yeah. about real work. I'm mm-hmm. not talking about um, you know checking things Reply or emails brainstorming or- with people, which is also a lot of fun and can feel like work. But I'm talking about creative work. I'm talking about um, hard math. I'm talking about working on a problem where Mm -hmm. it actually feels like strain and friction. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about not getting up to get a drink of water, even if you're thirsty. Wow! I'm talking. I mean, this is a (laughs) little bit. Yeah, this is very. It's a little bit masochistic, but the payoff is huge. Yeah. Because of what you accomplish, but also because of your ability to reinforce those circuits so that those circuits can kick in for six minutes when you need to do six minutes of something focused in the afternoon. Right. Someone comes to you with a spreadsheet and says, this doesn't make any sense. Do you want to do this? Do you really want to fly to this meeting that you're going to? And you, you could just laser in and take care of
0: everything. And then you can go right back to what you were doing mm. in a very seamless way. That's cool. Yeah. Can you talk about, you mentioned dopamine a little bit. Can you talk about dopamine focus and motivation and how to manage our dopamine hits because it seems like every 30 seconds we're getting dopamine now, whether it's drinking coffee, having candy, social media, email pings, dings on the watches, whatever it is, it's a dopamine overload it feels like. Yes. So how do we stay motivated and manage dopamine at the same time? Yeah.
1: Great question. Dopamine is the molecule of motivation. The
0: molecule of motivation.
1: Absolutely. I mean, for years and years, people thought dopamine was about pleasure, but dopamine is mainly about craving and motivation and drive. Okay. There's a simple experiment that illustrates that, but uh, I would be remiss if I didn't first mention uh, two excellent resources uh, for people that want to learn a lot about dopamine. Uh, These would be perhaps interesting people for you to talk to directly. Uh, The first is a book called The Molecule of More, which is all about dopamine. Uh, The author is Lieberman. I I don't know him personally, but I love the book. I wish I had written it. Uh, The second is Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. And the author there is Anna Lemke, L-E-M-K-E. She's a medical doctor and psychiatrist and runs the Dual Diagnosis Addiction Clinic at Stanford School Mm -hmm, of Medicine. mm -hmm. She's a colleague, I I consider her a friend, and she is um, world-class, second to none in all things dopamine as it relates to addiction. So wonderful reads. and so a lot of what I'm going to talk about is, go, is kind of paraphrasing elements from their book, so I wanna be clear. Um, so here's the experiment. Take two rats, uh, Yeah. you give them a lever they can press, and they can get food out of that lever. They can get um, heat if the, their cage is cold. They can get all sorts of things that are great for a rat, um, including uh, a mate to mate with if they press this lever. Both rats press the lever just fine. Now you take away dopamine from one of those rats. You can actually do that by um, using a a toxin that can kill off all the dopamine neurons. Okay. There's an equivalent experiment that's been done in humans, but it was a naturally occurring death of these these dopamine neurons, much in the same way that Parkinson's destroys dopamine neurons. What you find is that both rats or both people still Experience pleasure from food, from sex, from warmth when they're cold, from cool when they're too warm, etc. However, if you take that rat, both rats, and you move them one rat length away from the lever, so they have to just do a little bit of work, a little bit of work in order to press the lever, or you take a human who has no dopamine neurons or very little dopamine, and you make the pleasureful thing a little bit more challenging to get to. The ones with no dopamine do not pursue pleasure at all. Mm. That's just one example of what now are hundreds of examples in the neuroscience literature showing that dopamine is the molecule of pursuit, craving, motivation, drive, you know, pick your favorite word. So dopamine is a good thing in motivation in provided it's in proper levels. Right. Yes, okay. that's right. Okay. If your dopamine is depleted, you will feel not motivated. Now there's a double-edged sword here because many things, as you mentioned accurately, trigger dopamine release. Look, seeing a positive comment, a compliment, food, the more palatable of food, a really tasty chip mm. compared to a slice of a potato that's, that's baked right. but doesn't have anything on it, one truly releases more dopamine than the other. Right. I could list off a number of things, but we have a baseline level of dopamine. Uh, nicotine, for instance, increases that by about 50%. Gives uh, you more dopamine. More dop- Dopamine is released. You have two major dopamine pathways in the brain. There's one related to movement, one related to reward. It's broadly speaking, there are others, mm-hmm. but broadly speaking, the so-called mesolimbic reward pathway. And then the other one, we, we don't have to throw out names. But <laughs> and we'll just confuse people. But so you have these reward pathways, and dopamine is involved in movement. So nicotine, about a 50% increase. Cocaine, 100% increase, wow. a doubling. Methamphetamine, 1,000 or even 1,000-fold increase. Holy cow. So huge increase in dopamine. That's why it's so addictive. So addictive. But what happens after that big dopamine increase is that the baseline levels of dopamine go below what they were before how low that dope drop is below baseline is proportional to how big the increase was before
0: that's why it's so addictive to stay on these things
1: that's right well and that's why if you're getting lots of little dopamine hits from things as we call them you're going to feel kind of depressed and those things don't feel as rewarding anymore Mm -hmm. okay now eventually the system can reset if you don't indulge let me give an example this is a true story example i i out of respect for the individual i don't want to reveal his name but uh in talking about dopamine, someone I know, um, has a child, um, the kid is in his twenties. He was a decent student, excellent athlete, really charming, nice kid. Yeah. I've known him since he was little. And he reached a point where his friends had graduated high, high school. He went to community college and he kind of fizzed out of that. He wasn't into that. You know, this resonated with my earlier story. <laughs> he was working a job, but then he wasn't feeling like working. And he was convinced he had ADHD and he was depressed and he started taking off down the path of medication, which by the way, have helped many, many people. Most of the medications for ADHD, by the way, we are drugs that increase dopamine ah. because dopamine increases focus, it increases motivation, and it increases drive, essentially, the willingness to get into action in pursuit of goals, just like the, the rats that have your dopamine or the humans that have dopamine pursue, the ones that have depleted dopamine do not. So this guy who is a real story uh, was struggling in a major way. So about three months ago, he was watching a lot of videos online. He was texting a lot, he was mainly playing video games, video games, video games, video games, but he wasn't really enjoying the, them as much anymore. And one thing you see with people with ADHD is they actually can focus if they're really interested in something. Right. Why? Because their dopamine levels are elevated and they're able to focus he heard about the dopamine system and Anna's work. And I talked to him and he decided to do what some people call dopamine fast, but for him that meant no video games. And he did two weeks of no screens, which at first I think was agonizing for him. Oh my gosh. It's now three months later. It's a little less than three months later. I actually talked to his parent today, working full time off all ADHD meds. Hmm. Has a girlfriend. I don't know if that's related or not. Probably because he's got his life together a little bit more, which is an yeah. attractive feature as opposed to someone who's you know spiraling out, doing nothing, living at home, which frankly is an unattractive feature, regardless of you know boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. Yeah. He's very focused on his work. He's excited by things, and he allows himself a short period of time each day where he plays video games, and he enjoys them again like never before. Mm. There is a simple explanation for this, which is that his dopamine system is reset he's when you're constantly pursuing things, eating highly palatable foods, engaging in very stimulating anything, any behavior that's very stimulating, there's a drop below baseline and it takes an increasingly great stimulus, high threshold stimulus in order to excite you. So if people are feeling bored, unmotivated, unstimulated, most of the time it's because they are overindulging in Mm. things that keep pounding this dopamine system but the but the baseline of dopamine is going down 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 down. now there are a few hacks that can actually help and anna talks about some of these in, in her book the main thing is to if you are if someone is engaging in any truly addictive behavior or substance or a behavior that just doesn't Feel like it's that great but you're finding yourself doing it compulsively mm-hmm. like wow what are some examples texting know? instagram i limit my instagram time to two hours per day which itself just sounds like a lot i'm a grown adult <laughs> and i well, spend two hours on but i do a lot of work, then, yeah, right? Lot work there right i'm trying to put out content that's educational you're creating, but sometimes you're i think jobs, to myself yeah. like i'm a grown man i'm spending two hours a day on instagram well that's a lot of where we spend our time now yeah. but if you allow yourself four hours a day on social media you'll probably find that it's you're scrolling, you're not even sure what you're looking for. like, what am I doing? Yeah, exactly, I'm just wasted this time. Exactly, and what you're looking for is something to jolt that baseline. So you wanna limit those behaviors, or in some cases, if it gets really severe like it was for this individual, you want to eliminate.
0: Completely, for 30, 60 days. Ideally,
1: it's 30 days. Now, this is the same prescriptive that they give alcoholics, heroin addicts, et cetera, that, but some of those drugs, of course, have actual withdrawal symptoms that can be problematic. Uh, you know, these days I'm not a pot smoker. I've never, I've never liked drugs or alcohol. I kind of lucked out that way. But um, you know, there's, and I'm not trying to uh, demonize. I'm not passing judgment. But the, you know, cannabis, for instance, is pretty prom, in prominent use, and a lot, and it, a lot of people, the idea of 30 days without that is, the, I think, they probably say they could do it, but it would be very challenging for mm-hmm. them. But, and I'm not here to tell people what to do, right? Then there's about drugs, alcohol, or anything. But the idea is 30 days of no interaction with that thing, person, behavior, mm. I mean, all sorts of things, so that you can enjoy other things. I, yes. I like to say, you know, addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. And if I may, enlightenment is a progressive expansion of the things that bring you pleasure. Right. All of that hinges on this dopamine system. So you have to be very judicious in your interactions with things that deliver pleasure or else they will soon not deliver pleasure and they will diminish your pleasure for everything else that you mm-hmm. interact with. So the way to think about this is wow. just to set up constraints. And as I'm stealing Anna's words left and right, forgive me Anna. she has many more important things <laughs> to say and she says them much more eloquently than I, but she says, you know, we don't give our kids chocolate cake for breakfast, mm-hmm. but we, we sort of understand that dessert comes at a certain time of day and after completing certain things. But we, for some reason, we just allow ourselves to just dive into this immense dopamine sensory landscape of social media. Because social media isn't just comments. You and me say, oh, like Lewis put something up. There's that. That stuff's great. But then there's also a lot of violent stuff, politically intense stuff. There's a lot of friction. There's a lot of joy. I mean, you're essentially going to the dopamine carnival. And, (laughs) And so you need to restrict the amount of time. Yes. And especially if you're somebody who wants to get work done and your work is not the, the you know, social media, and I'm pointing at social media, but this could be anything, uh, anything that you enjoy. F- uh, food, for instance, you don't want to overindulge in highly palatable foods. It's just bad for us. We know this for a number of reasons. So the key is to mm. take this dopamine system and set it up for you to be able to be motivated and focused. And the way to do that is to make the experiences around that thing that you want to be motivated to do a little less or a lot less exciting. What this, do you mean? This is why I don't listen to music these days or check text messages while I'm in the gym. And sometimes I'll listen to a book or a podcast, but I really try and just, be, just work out, including while I'm running. Why? Because these days we are layering in dopamine. We're getting dopamine from the energy drink we're, we're drinking Okay. Big increase in dopamine. I forget the actual numbers, but I think it's 1.8 times increase. And some of them have L-tyrosine, which is a dopamine precursor. Mm. Some of them have caffeine, which also increases dopamine and upregulates dopamine receptors. So you're getting it from the energy drink. Plus it's the video game you're playing. Plus you're with your friends. It's just a dopamine soup, which sounds great, except that other things... That you do afterwards are going to seem understimulating, mm. and you're going to think I can't focus on this. Yeah. So I also kind of wonder whether or not you were having trouble focusing in your class because the Canelo fight was that awesome. It was insane. It, it was. was. Amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. I, I'm a, I am a boxing fan. It was and, crazy. And he, if you had to like build a boxer, you'd build him like that. Just his incredible. head, the his shape, that yeah, the
0: right hook. And it was just thing. like the roar of the crowd and the, just the energy. It was amazing, man.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah, great. There's a there's a beautiful story unfolding there with with him. But yes. so that could be it too. You know, there's a kind of a letdown, and so I think it's it may be helpful for people to understand mm. that the postpartum depression that people feel after a big celebration is okay, real. That's real. And if you just wait a little while, that system will reset. You don't mm-hmm. have to necessarily wait 30 days, but if you just had a great party, you should expect that there'll be a long tail of joy, but then you might feel a little low, a little underwhelmed.
0: So true, man. And if you're
1: going to sit down and try and do work and you're finding yourself not that focused, you might want to think about some of the behaviors that led up to that work. Mm -hmm. So I really try to get into my work in a focused way by making the the period right before. It's a little boring, frankly, going outside, getting some sunlight, drinking my mate. It sounds like a pretty boring life, right? It's not like blasting a bunch of music and getting really amped up, Mm -hmm. but I'm able to get a nice peak of dopamine during that workout, and I think that's a functional dopamine increase. And then afterwards, yes, indeed, there's a drop. Now, there's some other hacks that mm-hmm. um, Anna's talked about, and again, we can look to our friend Wim Hof. Other people have done this, although this was happening long before Wim. There's a beautiful study published in the European Journal of Physiology showing that getting into cold water, so this could be cold shower could be ice bath could be any number of different plunge type things or an ocean or whatever that people want to use for anywhere from 3 to 6 minutes creates a 2.5x increase in dopamine that lasts many hours so it's a unique stimulus because it's not like a spike oh. and then it drops it's like a long arc increasing your baseline dopamine increases alertness mm. feelings of well-being some they did blood draws in this study, so these are real data. You know, they weren't. Yes. Um, it wasn't conjecture. They really know this, and there are some cases of people who were full blown addicts or people who are struggling with ADHD who start doing regular cold water exposure. You know, three to six times a week, three to six minutes at a time, and discover that wow, they actually can focus because they're getting that dopamine
0: increase. Wow. Yeah. yeah, this stuff is fascinating, man.
1: It's 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 really interesting. I think that, to me because the dopamine, you know, coming up in neuroscience, I've been in the game a long time now, almost you know, gosh, almost thirty years. But um, dopamine was always thought of as like pleasure, but it's it's confusing because it's it's associated with pleasure, but it's not the actual experience of pleasure. Mm-hmm. And immediately after sex, immediately after any powerful. Ex- Experience, that's very pleasurable. Dopamine system crashes Cross. down.
0: Yeah. What happens in the
1: body when dopamine crashes? Uh, well, there's an interesting thing that happens because uh, there's a hormone called prolactin, which is actually involved in milk letdown for, for nursing, but is also mm. inc- uh, increased in both men and women in anticipation of childbirth. This is actually responsible for the so-called dad bod. <laughs> Prolactin lays down body fat stores, wow. tends to make people a little more sedentary. And this has been shown in humans and in animals. It tends to reduce libido and sex drive. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about m- dopamine as a currency of motivation that biology has used for, for hundreds of thousands yes. of years. So you know whether or not you know we, we think about currencies like dollars or euros or Bitcoins or Ethereum, all of those actually relate to dopamine they all dopamine is the fundamental currency yeah. that we're all working for and dopamine has this quality of making us focused on things outside our immediate experience this is why people who are on cocaine or methamphetamine which is a really extreme version of, of dopamine increase they tend to be all about plans and action they're not sitting there thinking about how wonderful they feel in their own body mm. whereas drugs like cannabis and uh, psilocybin and drugs these are not drugs that I recommend people use recreationally. I, I, I'm not passing judgment, but I just wanna be clear about what I'm saying and not saying that any drugs that increase serotonin tend to make people kind of still focused on their internal landscape, their thinking. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an internal reflection right. thing. So the serotonin system and the dopamine system are kind of antagonistic to one another. And the prolactin system is associated with the serotonin system. So prolactin is kind of about, it's a it's a mellowing out. Interesting. And, um, there, Uh, Just to to nail the the point, there are many people in the world who suffer from schizophrenia, 1% of the world's population, a huge number, a very sad thing, psychosis, hearing things, et cetera. And most of the drugs designed to treat schizophrenic psychosis are drugs that reduce dopamine.
0: And Mm. oftentimes you'll
1: see people on the street who are taking these drugs and they'll be writhing like this with their face. Sometimes men will have gynecomastia, they'll have breast development, because these drugs block dopamine, increase prolactin, and disrupt the motor pathways that are associated with movement. Wow! I say this for two reasons. One is it illustrates the relationship between prolactin, dopamine, movement, et cetera. But the other is to hopefully uh, invoke a little bit of empathy for people that oftentimes we will see people who, if they're shouting and acting crazy, that's probably an unmedicated person. Uh, who's bipolar or has schizophrenia but if you see someone in their catatonic or they are writhing and acting very strange that's a person who's um we don't know for sure but very likely is actively trying to treat their own psychosis Mm. to eliminate the voices and things of that sort so i say that because i you know i I, we have a big homeless population issue Mm -hmm. in california and elsewhere too and oftentimes we see people acting crazy and we think oh they're you know uh, we make this disparaging judgment and everyone's prone to doing it of course, but they're crazy. But oftentimes that those crazy movements and the things they're doing are the reflection of drugs that block the dopamine system.
0: Gotcha. Yeah.
1: So I I don't mean to make it dark, but I think that there is a, you know, 1% of the world's population is a huge number and a lot of people suffering from these things. Now
0: I want to bring it home with this idea about um, drugs, specifically smoking, alcohol, and let's say, Uh, marijuana Mm -hmm. I guess the most commonly used drugs by most people how much do those those three substances affect dopamine and motivation and focus okay and how do they affect the brain chemically yeah if you're using them on a consistent basis let's say you know every week you're using one of these does it affect the brain that much or does it not really affect the brain in terms of focus motivation and dopamine
1: Okay, um, with the caveats. Excellent question, by the way, and I think actually in a fundamentally important question because we live in a in a world of substances. Yes, I mean, every, I mean we all have to eat, we all have to hydrate. Mm-hmm. Many, I'm drinking caffeine right now. Right. Um, as I mentioned, drugs and. Uh, and alcohol have never been my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was part of an MDMA clinical trial. Yes. I did two two of those sessions. That's a drug, right? But it was part of a medically supervised clinical trial. But I'm not a, a person who uses recreational drugs. Right. And so I, I wanna just also set up the caveat that I have no judgment whatsoever. Right. I think if people are informed, they can make better decisions for themselves.
0: Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm curious more about the scientific yeah. data. What is sure. it? Yeah. People are to use it whether they yeah. you know, they know about know it Just know what not. you're doing. Yeah, just know okay. what you're doing. Let's
1: take nicotine first. Yes. I have a colleague not at Stanford who has a Nobel prize who chews Nicorette. Why? I asked him why. And he said, well, for years he was a smoker and it allowed him to focus. Mm. And then he realized that lung cancer is something he doesn't want. So he switched, he quit and he couldn't focus as well. So chews he started chewing jump. Nicorette, yeah. that's right. Um, constantly throughout the day. Nicorette stimulates acetylcholine receptors called nicotine receptors. And they are located in multiple places in the brain and body, but they are highly enriched in an area of the forebrain called nucleus basalis that increases focus and the ability to focus. So nicotine increases focus. Okay, I won't lie, it does. Yeah. Um, it's the smoking part that can mess you up. And nowadays, I see a lot of people vaping. That seems to be a big thing, and that's a big concern with kids. And yes. again, now I'm sounding—I'm not a parent, and I'm right, sounding right, like right. a parent. But you know, I think the what is vaping do to the brain, though? Well, they're becoming highly addicted to. Nicotine stimulation. And it's very, very hard to quit nicotine stimulation because the the level of pleasure and focus that you get from nicotine stimulation is significant. You get a dopamine increase and the nicotine increase, and that makes you feel motivated and focused. It's like the perfect storm of chemicals to allow you to do really focused work. And so nicotine, and because it increases dopamine and acetylcholine is this magic elixir for motivation and focus but it's potentially addictive and hazardous in some cases. Got it. I actually have several friends that dip Nic- Nicorette uh-huh. all day long. Uh-huh. Um, some people feel sick doing it. Some people love it. There, I should mention some safer alternatives, perhaps. Sure. Uh, uh, this, um, this isn't really about supplements, but there is something called Alpha GPC, which I occasionally take 300 milligrams of Alpha GPC to do a work bout. It does increase focus because mm-hmm. it increases acetylcholine release. Got it. There is some evidence that alpha GPC at, I think, 600 to 900 milligrams per day can offset some of the mental decline associated with Alzheimer's and aging, but I'm this is an over-the-counter thing people have right. to check with their doctor. Right. Okay. So that's nicotine. That's how that right. works. But that's why people smoke. That's why they take Nicorette. That's why people are vaping, and that's why people are taking alpha GPC. And nowadays, the whole business of nootropics is, you know, smart drugs are mainly geared towards mainly consist of things that have caffeine to increase adrenaline for alertness mm-hmm. and dopamine for motivation and things that increase acetylcholine and things like alpha GPC. Got it. Okay. Then there's alcohol and alcohol is more of a sedative. Alcohol's main effect is to reduce the amount of activity in the forebrain, which is involved in planning and inhibiting. It's involved in the no-goes. Right. Right. It's also involved in the reform. Uh, the sense of self and your sense, your self image, who you think you are in the world. It's kind of interesting. So when people have a drink or two, they feel less inhibited. They also, at least at the early stages of drinking, they tend to feel more confident. They tend to continue drinking, then they Mm. tend to lose their self image. They forget who they are. They can even go blackout (laughs) drunk. And the downstream chemicals are interesting for a small, maybe 8% of the population alcohol causes a huge dopamine increase. These are the people that from the first drink, they discover that they are an alcoholic or very prone to alcoholism. Mm. Uh, I've known people like this, then these are the people that can drink like nobody else. It's not just a tolerance, it's that dopamine system kicking in. Whereas for most people, it's more of a sedative, it works through the so-called GABA system, and it's more of a just kind of a tranquilizer to, to shut everything got it, down. Got it. Okay. Okay. But it doesn't help you focus. Okay. No, so a lot of people self-medicate by, so being alert is a, is a prerequisite to being focused, but being too alert makes it hard to focus because then your spotlights are going all over the place. Some people use alcohol as a way to reduce that level of alertness slightly and get into kind of a groove mm-hmm. where they can you know, focus a little better than they would otherwise. Got it. The, ideally, you would know how to do that without the, alcohol, but a lot of people use alcohol for right, that reason. Right. Okay. You know, I, I'm always, I, I'm going to make some enemies here, but I have family members who will say, I need a drink. You know, you know, people will say, I need a drink. That is a sign of somebody that can't regulate their nervous system, uh. right? Like I need a cup of coffee is a, and I'm not being disparaging of these statements. I've, I've said, I need a cup of coffee. But what you're really saying is that your system requires this chemical to get a lift.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: not a crime for most people, but, if you need a drink in order to relax in my mind you have you don't actually have control over your nervous system wow. that's you know no judgment but it would be wise to try and develop some behavioral tools that could perhaps work alongside your pharmacology if that's sure, what you sure, want sure. if you still yeah. want to pursue pharmacology yeah and then there's cannabis there's marijuana mm-hmm. and there we have to divide nowadays among cbd mm-hmm. versus thc uh, and the potency of a lot of edibles and and people smoking um, cannabis, the potency has gone way, way up. So there's big dopamine increases, big serotonin increases, which is the kind of mellowing effect or the lack of anxiety. And then of course, there's this huge array of strains now where um, like I, anytime I tell a a pot, a really seasoned pot smoker that I don't like cannabis, I just don't, you know, admittedly, I tried it many years ago, I did inhale and I didn't like it. And so I didn't do it again. And but I'm told that there are now many different strains, some of which uh, have a certain type of psychoactive effects and make people focused and alert. Mm. Others that are make them more sleepy. There's a huge array of effects: dopamine, serotonin, and what's called the cannabinoid system. And this is interesting: the cannabinoid receptors are actually named because they bind cannabis. Are in the hippocampus and other areas of the body. They're involved in pain modulation. Not surprisingly, a lot of people will take uh, smoke cannabis for chronic pain mm. or for glaucoma because it reduces eye pressure, and it's a pressure a disease of pressure in the eye. And it's involved in learning, memory, and forgetting. Oh, that's right. So,
0: but it's involved in forgetting. That's not, right, not
1: remembering. Correct. So, stimulation <laughs> of the of the cannabinoid system makes you more prone to forget things. Wow. And let's just put it this way: pot smokers are not. Um, uh, they're not savants when it comes to remembering things. And if they are, it's fair to say that they would be better at remembering things if they didn't use cannabis. Interesting. But again, I, I want to be clear what my stance is on this because I know that many people derive great benefit from some of these things. Yes. And provided it's done legally, age appropriate, et cetera. I, I, again, no judgment. I think that there are people who derive benefit. And it's a question of context. And Uh the one context that we know this is very problematic, all of this is problematic, is in the developing brain. Because up until about age 25, the amount of neuroplasticity that you can get from any single event, chemical or behavioral or otherwise, is very robust. And so if people are growing up using a lot of a particular drug, then the brain is reshaping, and those dopamine circuits are reshaping, and those serotonin circuits are reshaping according to that chemical environment. And right. so I think it's important to know that. Yeah. And so for some people, for instance, um, who relied heavily on ADHD drugs, Ritalin and Adderall, during childhood, it's very hard for them to come off as adults. Yes, yes. And, and, and again, there are drugs like modafinil, armodafinil, uh, Ritalin, Adderall that have helped millions of people. And there are also millions of people who are relying on these compounds who probably don't need them but they aren't aware of some of the other protocols and approaches. Right. So it's, it's sort of a, a situation whereby the pharmacology is very potent, it's available, and so people go to the, the lowest hanging fruit.
0: Right, right. You're a wealth of information. Uh, Hubermanlab.com, the podcast Huberman Lab. If you guys want a weekly dose of neuroscience and information on optimizing the body, the brain, sleep, all these different things. You've got one of the top podcasts in the world, YouTube channel, Instagram channel. It's all at Huberman Lab, everywhere. I highly recommend you subscribe. Uh, I'm trying to get you to do a book soon. I keep saying it. I don't know if there's a book in the works, but it, hopefully- my, Did
1: my editor ask you? do I've been working, <laughs> I finished the
0: book and then um,
1: I, I have not sent the book back to the publisher. I, I. Eventually, there will be a book or books, plural.
0: Yes, multiple. Uh, I, we need multiple. Books I just,
1: I, as you probably notice, uh, you know, I'm not very succinct, and so for me, it's just been great fun. And by the way, I, I owe you a great deal of thanks. You know, to join the ranks of the podcasters because yes. you you've been a tremendous inspiration and, and source of support. Yes, in uh, in having me on several times and in getting the word out there podcasting is one form books are another. And one of these days I'll get my
0: act together and and finish. It's coming, they're coming. But Huberman Lab in the meantime is amazing show, YouTube channel, Instagram. You do Instagram lives that are very informative. You break down all the science, which I love. Uh, So people need to go check you out there. We're gonna do a part two. We're gonna come back and talk about sleep and all things sleep here. So make sure you guys are coming back for that when we drop that. Uh, I wanna ask you the three truths again in your definition of greatness. And see if it's changed these are like, always I, the hardest questions i've got them up here so i'm okay. curious if you right. if it's the same thing oh my okay well if so, i if i migrate if off those oh, if it's different I, that's great i guess it means there was neuroplasticity there you go yes so uh three truths uh if this was your last day and, and we didn't have access to any of your information what would you say are those three truths that you would share with the world three lessons you've learned that you would share with the world well i'm a
1: big believer in what the oracle said, which is know thyself. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important for all of us to repeatedly take stock of where our strengths are, where our weaknesses are, uh, where we find meaning and purpose, and um, where we find joy, Mm -hmm. and to take stock of those. And it's, it's a simple exercise. You just take a walk or write it down and be as honest with yourself as you one can be and to try and lean into the strengths and try and make up some of the deficiencies which we all have nice. I certainly do um, many many deficiencies as the people <laughs> in my life will tell you um, but I think it's a very important exercise that's probably the first one the second one is take care of your physiology you know I I believe in psychology we are psychological animals we are storytellers but if your physiology isn't where it needs to be, if the foundation is troubled, it's gonna be very hard to navigate your mental states. And so I've often said, and I'll say it again, that if you can't control the mind with the mind, if you want to look to the body to control the mind. So if your thoughts, if you're having a hard time controlling your thoughts, your feelings and emotions, you're feeling triggered, you're feeling like everything's bearing down on you, try, to get out of that trap by focusing on particular patterns of breathing, take a cold shower, go for a walk, get some sunshine, do something to shift your physiology so that you can approach that challenge from a different stance. And then the third one is one that I'm getting increasingly into these days, which is what I would call get the download. I'm getting a lot of value from this personally which is you know when you wake up in the morning your brain is in that kind of liminal state between wakefulness and uh, and sleep and if you bombard yourself with sensory information through mainly through screens you lose out on a key opportunity to hear some of what your sub, truly your subconscious process during the middle mm. of the night and so i suggest when you go outside take a little notebook and a piece of uh, you know a pen or a pencil um and jot down what comes to mind if anything some days something comes to mind sometimes no but again if you're allowing space for it you'll be amazed at what kinds of ideas and clarity can come about as yes. it relates to your work and your relationships and yourself it's a really a sacred time and it's mm. one that i think we've we've kind of bulldozed out of the way by just bringing in more stuff right. and all that stuff is great i'm you know, I love the internet. I really do. I think yeah, it's fun. I think it's really <laughs> cool, and there's so much learning to be had and, uh-huh. and pleasure to be had. But I think that try and get the download of your of your life experience, and that yes. happens in that early morning time. So just yeah. create a little bit of space, and uh, and and you'll benefit.
0: I like it. I like it. You've you hit one of the three, so that's good. I like <laughs> it. I like it. Um, I want to acknowledge you, uh, Andrew, for constantly showing up, man. You constantly show up on the research data. You're just studying and obsessing about how to find the best strategies based on data to support human beings. And that's what we're all about here at the School of Greatness is how do we learn the things that can improve our life? And so I'm so grateful for you. I appreciate you. And the world is better having you in it, having your information and the way you break it down, you really break it down in a scientific way that's also easy to understand. You use the big terminology, but then you'd say, well, this is what this means and how to use it. So I really appreciate how you show up, your almost 30 years of commitment to this work and understanding the brain, you know, sleep, the body, all these things for optimizing our life. So I appreciate appreciate you, my friend.
1: Thank you, I appreciate you too. And I, I, I admire the way you show up to things. I, I admire your energy levels and your positivity, <laughs> but um, hearing all that is very gratifying. And thanks so much for having me on. It's course, always man. a tremendous pleasure.
0: Of course, man. Final question, what's your definition of greatness?
1: constant, deliberate focus on self-improvement.
0: Matter. And now it's time to go out there and do something great.